You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We open our minds and our hearts to Thee, O Lord, and ask that through Thy wisdom and Thy truth, You illuminate us and convict us to live worthy of Thy name. And this I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. I better move this cup of coffee because I've already spilled it once. <laughs> okay, the first, you know, the gospel and literature. Uh, the gospel is not, as you well know, a uh, how to win friends and influence people kind of story. The gospel is a drama. It tells us that we are in a situation that we cannot solve ourselves that the world has a profound fundamental problem here, and we of the world cannot fix that, even though we are under command by God to do the best we can. It is in such a world that what we theologically call fallen, that the gospel of grace comes and saves us. It does not liberate us out of the world, but it redeems us in the world. You know, I think one of the great truths of Christianity is that we don't find God. God finds us. God comes and looks for us. As you well know, the first question in the Bible is, where are you? God goes and looks for Adam and Eve. And I think God looks for us. The story of the gospel has how God has found us in the redemptive works of Jesus Christ. How can we depict this story? That is, we live in a world in which we must do something, but it is, it is insolvable on our own. But we have received the grace of God, and we can live with God's presence in such a world. It's the good news that we have hope, we have faith, and we can have love because of what Christ has done for us. And I think literature has a very powerful way to do it. Stories, you know, I, I, I'm a philosopher, and so I, I deal with sort of strict propositions, and I even teach a logic class. And, you know, if, P, if A is bigger than B, B is bigger than C, what's the only true conclusion? Okay, all of that is crystal clear, and we try to make it very exact and, and sense predictable but life is not that way it's not life is messy it's complicated it's temporal it's changing and the best way I think to depict the profound lessons that we must learn in life is through stories through narratives through a beginning middle and an end through a plot that develops what do we do in our own story and I think one of the powerful powerful impacts that great literature can have upon us is that it draws our own story in that story all right, we're going to look at two very, very troubling stories today uh, that really make you almost want to scream. Yeah. There's the story of Oedipus Rex and then the story of Job. But they're going to teach us something, I think, here the family. We live in a world that is incredibly difficult. Things happen to good people that are just unimaginable and unjust. No doubt about it. There's no secret to that. That happens. And we're ignorant of how to solve and keep those things from happening. How can we keep another war from happening? Can we do it? How can we keep another pandemic from happening? How can we keep you know, there, uh, another you know, depression from happening? How can we do that? The very best of minds in human history have been applied to those questions. And we haven't stopped these things. There's something that is fundamentally wrong. But we also know deep within our conscience, deep within our own self-understanding, that we must do something. So the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not. 
And we have a conviction that we must do something about it. And we see that kind of struggle here in these wonderful stories of Oedipus Rex and in the book of Job. Anyone here read the Oedipus Rex? Okay, good. Good for you. Well, uh, it's something that kind of stays in your mind. I've seen a play, a couple of versions of it. Um, I, I, I teach it some, not the whole text itself, uh, but I teach part of the lessons that's learned from it. And uh, you know the story. Let me give you a little background to it. Uh, sorry for the little sensuous depiction here. I, I, I looked around. I couldn't find another one. So you're adults. You know how to handle these sort of things. Uh, uh, as you all know, the story starts off, uh, Sophocles writes, and this is the first of a trilogy, by the way, Antigone follows, and that's just as profound, in my opinion, Antigone is, and then uh, 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 Oedipus at Cologne. But, as you know, the story starts off, and he is in Thebes, which is kind of west of Athens at one time, supposedly when this was written, it was perhaps the most powerful Greek city-state, Thebes was, and a plague was uh, killing everybody. And so everyone was wondering why a plague was killing everyone, and this is what that tries to depict, the sorrow, the anguish of the whole city of Thebes in a plague. And the king of Thebes at this time is called Oedipus. Oedipus Rex, hence king, Rex, king, Latin, even though it's Greek. Uh, Tyrrhenius is the actual Greek title, Oedipus Tyrrhenius. Well, th- uh, he is the, the king of Thebes, and the reason why he's the king of Thebes is that one day after their older king Laius, L-A-I-U-S, had been murdered, uh, he comes and he confronts uh, uh, this, let me back, I'm going to go forward and I'll come back to this, he confronts the Sphinx, who is just outside the city wall of Thebes, and the Sphinx is killing people as they come in, and everybody is absolutely terrified. Terrified by this horrendous animal called the Sphinx. And so when Oedipus walks up to Thebes, the Sphinx stops him and gives him a riddle. And if he can solve that riddle, then he can pass through. Uh, even though in Oedipus, I mean, Oedipus Rex, at least the translation that I have, it does not have this riddle in it. It just says a riddle. It is sort of, I don't know, an apocryphal story or a legend or whatever that the riddle that the Sphinx asked Oedipus was, what crawls on four in the morning, walks on two in the afternoon, and walks on three in the evening? What is it? Humanity, that's right. We all start crawling on our fours as children, as infants. Then we walk in two as an adult. Then when we get old and wretched, we get a cane. He solved it. Well, that totally dismantled the Sphinx, and she threw herself off a cliff and died. And that freed the city, and they made him a king for that. Well, it wasn't long after that, and I'll back up, uh, the the plague breaks out. And Caron, C-R-E-O-N, who was the brother of Oedipus' wife, an older woman, pay attention to that, Jocasta, J-A-C-A-S-T-A, Jocasta, uh, comes and tells uh, Oedipus that uh, the reason why we have a play is that a taboo has been broken. The king has been killed. Uh, and that's why we have the play. The gods have brought this plague on us because we have committed a great taboo. And so what uh, Oedipus decides to do is find out who indeed had 
broken the taboo and it brought the plague on. He was going to be the hero of the city of, of, of Thebes. And uh, in that, he uh, understands and eventually comes to recognize that he is the problem. But let's back up and try to understand why he is the problem. Uh, now, he was born of Laosis and Jocasta. He was a child of Laos, the king of Thebes, and Jocasta, the queen of Thebes. But Laos heard of an oracle that he would give birth to a child that would kill him and marry his, his wife. And so they had a child, and at three days of age, what Laos did was to pin his feet together, swelling his feet, hence the name Oedipus, which means swollen foot and leaves him on a mountaintop, or tells Jocasta to go and kill this boy because you know, this, pro this, this prophecy has been given. And so she goes up there. There are some accounts that say she did indeed leave uh, Edmus there. Some say that she gave Edmus to a shepherd. The version that I have is that she gave to a shepherd. She could have killed her own son. Well, that shepherd eventually takes Edmus down to another shepherd who takes Oedipus as an infant to Corinth. Polybus is the king of Corinth, and they're childless. And so Polybus adopts Oedipus and raises Oedipus as his son. So Oedipus thinks he's going to inherit the kingdom of Corinth after this. Well, he hears another oracle. Remember, Laosis hears an oracle. Oracle plays a big role in this story. And he hears an oracle, and the oracle is, you will kill your father. And he loves Polybuses, so what he does is that he flees. He runs away. And when he is wandering, he comes to a narrow pass in a road where three roads come together. It's called the Three Forked in the Road. One of those roads goes to Delphi, where the other world is. And he is there, and in this narrow pass, he meets a chariot with several people on it. And they won't pass by. They get in a quarrel, and they start to fight. And the man in the, the older man in the chariot, he hits him in the head with a club and kills him. And so he goes on and he makes his way uh, to Thebes, and that's when he meets the Sphinx. All right, that's how he shows up. All right, now he's trying to find out who broke the taboo, who has brought this plague on, and and in, in doing so, he meets. I tried to. Let me see if I do. Hold on a second. No, that's not good. I'll leave it right there. This is where we're going to end up. But a blind priest named Tiresias, T-I-R-E-S-I-A-S, is summoned to the palace to tell him what he knows about the cause of this plague. And um, I don't have enough time to say this, but uh, I had some portions of it, and I'll read the last portion of it here in a minute. Uh, he, the, the blind priest tells him that I, I, I can't do this. I'm not going to tell you. Wisdom is too hard for me to know. So he knows the right answer. And eventually, uh, Oedipus is all indignant and threatens him with his life and says, you must tell me this. And so he does. He says, well, you are the man. And Oedipus is just dumbfounded. Why am I the man? And he said, well, because you have been ordained by Apollo. The God to whom you pray has ordained that you will kill your father and marry your mother. And he said, that's impossible. You must be plotting to overthrow me. And Creon, my wife's brother, but also his uncle, 
uh, is also in this with you. And so he starts this campaign against Creon. His wife, who's also his mother, Jocasta, uh, hears of that, and she comes and says, why are you doing this? We got married, uh, and he is my brother. You know he is trustworthy. And Oedipus says, because uh, they are passing around this false prophecy that I'm going to kill my father and marry my mother. My father lives in Corinth. There's no way I can kill him. I'm never going back to Corinth. And so he consults an oracle to see if that's true. Third time an oracle is consulted. And the oracle repeats, it's like a refrain throughout the story, what Laius has heard, and then what he also heard when he was in Corinth. And that is, you're going to kill your father, and you will marry your mother. And here's one of the turning points, and this creates tension within the story. Jocasta says, don't believe these prophecies. They're not true. I'll tell you, these, these you know, people who go around saying they have access to the oracle are false because I'll tell you of an experience. Uh, with my previous husband, the former king, we heard of this prophecy that our child would kill the father and marry me. And look, I married you. I did marry that child. And so don't believe this. And so just for a minute, Oedipus thinks, well, maybe, maybe that's true. Well, evidence begins to stack up that that's not quite true. A messenger is sent for, and uh, Oedipus wants to find out if the account that he remembers jives with the account that Jocasta says of the death of Laiaris. And that is, she had heard that he had been killed by a number of people. Several people killed him. And a messenger had run away, a servant, and they found that messenger and, and brought him, and that messenger then says to Oedipus, uh, yes, there was one person that did it. Not many people. So Jocasta's story was wrong. And that person is you. And Jocasta's story was wrong again. The prophecy indeed had become fulfilled. That he was the man. He thought Polybius was his father. And Polybius had died in that process. And, and uh, Oedipus thought, okay, it's not me. My father died without me killing me. But Polybius is not his father. Laius is his father. And so there, uh, in this realization, all the horrors of the world fall upon him and Joe Constance. And she runs to her bedroom and hangs herself, and hangs herself, because of shame that she was the wife of her son, she was the mother of her granddaughters. And this was too much for her there. And so she hanged herself. And here's what Oedipus does. He is feeling such horrible, horrible shame for what he had done. He said, death is too easy for me. I shouldn't die. I need to suffer proportional to what I have done wrong. And so what he has decided to do was to blind himself. I, I saw this once, not actually physically, but depicted on the stage once, that she, he got the golden brooches off her dress that she has hanged there and stuck them in his eyes. Because he did not want to be able to see his parents in the other world. Okay, I'm, uh, I've done injustice to this, but that's the basic plot of the story. Now, throughout the story, and I've given you the main characters, there's this indi individual called the Chorus. 
In Greek tragedy, the choruses always play interesting roles. I think, in my somewhat sophomoric understanding of Greek tragedies, that in Oedipus Rex, the chorus stands for us as the audience. Throughout the play, the chorus sort of moves the plot along by asking questions that the audience must be asking, like, why is this happening? The last bit of dialogue in the play is done by the chorus, and this is what he says. These are some of the most famous lines in all of Greek tragedy. Behold Thebians, Oedipus, great and wise, who solved the famous riddle. This is he whom all men gazed upon with envious eyes, who now is struggling in a stormy sea, crushed by the billows of his bitter woes. Look to the end of mortal life. In vain we say a man is happy that he goes beyond his life's final border free from pain. The upshot of that is, when do you know your life is complete? When do you know? You never know what's going to happen in the future. Now, you probably know this. Uh, Freud found a lot of significance in the story of the Oedipus Rex. Now, I'm not wanting to sort of dab into his sort of sexual analysis of how that story informs us of this. But he does say something else pretty interesting about the story. He, he, he is a little befuddled why people are so enamored with the story, because it's immoral. It's horrible. Apollo sets all this up. This, this ought to be a reason not to believe in the gods. And he marries his mother and kills his father and uh, you know, suicide at the end. I mean, nearly everything that we would think would happen I mean, incorrectly about human life is there in this, this great story and we're supposed to take this seriously. And so Freud sort of muses, why are, we, why are we so enamored with the story? And his conclusion is this. It reveals something about human nature that we have suppressed certain things in our lives that we cannot deal with. And if you know much about Freud's psychoanalysis, we do this at an early age. And you can never really face these kind of suppressed frustrations, horrors, losses, inadequacies, insecurities. You can never, we, we cannot get to them in the id, in the he would say, or the subconscious. And so we're always, we're struggling with this. But, and here's what he says is so interesting about the play. We all have an awareness something is wrong in our lives and we don't know how to fix it. Something is wrong. And I think that's a great insight to this play. There is something wrong. And I cannot be my own God. I cannot redeem myself. Oedipus was a good man. He was a smart man, a courageous man, an honorable man, a good father. And his destiny led to his own room. Sometimes, you know, we, we will do that which we thought we would never do, and we thought we were doing it for the right reason. And I think that's what this story tells us. There's something endemically wrong in the human condition, and we need a Savior. Like I started off with, do we have enough smart people in this generation to stop another war? To stop more racism, sexism, horribleism, hateism? Do we? Do we need more PhDs in social science? Or more, uh, you know, PhDs in pharmacology to solve the problem of human hate and misery and malice and greed and envy? It, it's in us. We suppress it according to Freud, but it is always there. And so we need to own up to the fact that this is who we are. And I think Oedipus Rex has a powerful way of saying that. Yes. 
Machiavelli said that the world goes into cycles. Do you think it does, like Machiavelli said, of chaos and order, naturally? Uh, well, I, I would say that historically. I'm not going to say that metaphysically, though. I, I don't yeah. think you know God created the world to be in cycles. But I do think human history yeah. repeats its problems, but in different forms. Well, you know, what, what do they call the First World War? The Great War. And? That's right. Did it? Within a generation. We'll go back at it. With even greater harms. So it's not over. It's not. In a sense, we all are like blind edifice here, struggling with the inadequacies of our own souls to solve our own problems. And this needs to be recognized, I think. Why? Because it opens us up to the grace of God, that God will and, and has come to solve a problem we cannot solve ourselves. All right, uh, like I said, I'm quite sure God's going to judge me for being so you know quick through these very profound stories. And the book of Job. Uh, if I start crying in this depiction, forgive me. Uh, it, it's hard not to take Job seriously without being emotionally moved by it. Like Oedipus, he was a good man, wasn't he? You know the story. I'm not going to you know, read the whole story to you. Uh, he was a good man. He did everything right. The most righteous person in the East, the text tells us. Then all of a sudden, the Satan, Ha-Satan in Hebrew, which means accuser, adversary. Don't think, you know, Dante's Inferno. Don't think that. that that's something else. But here in this ancient text, and it, by the way, it has very few references to anything Israelite. Not, there's no commandment, there's no covenant, there's no great prophets to this. It's part of this kind of sort of big movement of wisdom in a sense. And uh, here at the very beginning, it is setting this up where Hasatan, Satan, and the Lord, it uses the name Lord, not just a God, which could fit any God, like maybe Apollo, but the Lord. Here is in collusion with Hasatan, the accuser. And the question is this. This is the probing question that I think evil always asks. And it is, you know, evil can be incredibly destructive. I mean, it can really, really destroy things. But the, the, the most insidious aspect of evil is to persuade what is good to do what is evil. That's the most insidious act. The subtle kind of ploys that evil can use to get us complicitous with it. That's the most insidious act of Satan here. Well, and so Satan says, well, you know, I know you're bragging about this person named Job, and, uh, you know, you may think he's good, but I'll tell you what, I can break him. I can get him to curse you. Because he doesn't love you absolutely. He loves you relatively. And that's the primary question of the book of Job. Do we love God absolutely? Or do we love God relatively? Do we love God regardless of what happens in our life? Or do we love God only when what happens is what we want? Yes? It's a little paradoxical, is it not? You're saying Oedipus is, is an inherent condition. How can we then be manipulated if we are already somewhat manipulated? Well, we're, we're profoundly ambiguous, that's for sure. Indeed. Uh, it's not that we're totally evil or totally good. We have the capacity to do great evil, and I think we have the capacity with grace to do great good. We're, we're profoundly ambiguous. You, I'm not, I know a little bit about some of you, and nothing about most of you, uh, 
you could do, we, we could all be caught up into something, some sort of mass hysteria or whatever, movement, and, and in the end realize that we were complicit to something that was absolutely hideous. You know, I think that's one of the great stories of the end of the 20th century. So many good, smart, cultured people were contributing to some of the worst evils in the world, worst evils imaginable, from all those intellectuals in Germany and all those intellectuals in the Soviet Union as well. All these very, you know, ordinarily good people contributing to Holocaust and and Gulag Archipelagos. We all could do that. Now, I'm not saying we are, you and I, but the possibility is there. Why is that? Because we're ambiguous. And see, this is, this, is, this is one of the great lessons of Job. This is why we need to be on guard. The Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, is clever enough to convince us to do something that we would never really want to do. And we thought we were doing the right thing all the time. And without the gospel, without the grace, we are vulnerable to that. All right, good gravy, I have five minutes. I'm going to be deserved to be slapped as you walk out the room. Uh, let, let me cut to the quick. Uh, Job is such a magnificent piece of literature. It's laid out in a beautiful way. You know, there's these debates between his friends and him, and it goes into three cycles, very methodically laid out. Whoever wrote this, we don't know was a genius, in my opinion, and uh, was insightful enough to be able to show, in my opinion, that Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then at the end, a young man named Elihu shows up and gets involved in this debate with Job, they all make sense. They give reasons to Job why this stuff is happening to him. He loses seven children, loses his fortune, and he's sick. He's there, you know, scraping scabs off his body on that dung heap there. Uh, there's a reason for this. And they come up, and these are, if you go back and look at it, I charge you to do that, by the way. I'm going to give you some homework assignment. Uh, and, and go back and think, well, you know, I've said the same thing. I've heard people say this. I've heard preachers say this. I've heard theologians say this. They're not totally ignorant of the situation. They are giving plausible reasons. I think that's part of the drama of this story. It puts us in this, this perplexity here. Okay, that happens. And as you well know, at first, you know, Job says to his wife, uh, you know, who says to him, you must curse God and die for what has happened to us, that uh, he brought me into the world and I'll stay with him even until I'm out of this world. And that then starts this long kind of narrative of Job arguing with his friends and then with Jehu. As you go through it, at first, let's say the first two-thirds of that dialogue, those, those three cycles plus Jacob, Job is directly answering their questions, but about the last third of it, he is objecting God. He starts to accuse God of being unjust. And that heightens this kind of tension between God and Job at that point. Then, I th uh, again, I just I have to hit the high water marks here. In chapter 38, it changes. The last time we heard God speak in the book of Job was there in chapter 3. And it's in prose, by the way. The last part, I mean, first part of the epilogue and the last part, I mean, the prologue, the last part of the epilogue were written in prose. The bulk of the book is written in poetry. Once again, showing just how, you know, what a treasure this great book is. It's poetry. poetry is evocative. It gets us to imagine certain things. 
prose tries to be deep, real descriptive. But in the last thing that we hear in the epilogue is that uh, the Lord says to the Satan, I'm going to put a fence around him. You can do whatever you want to, but I'm going to put a fence around him. You can't kill him. All right, that's in the prose. But then in chapter 8, God speaks in poetic ways, in poetry, to Job out of the whirlwind. Why a whirlwind? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God speak out of whirlwinds? There are a couple of reasons. One, in the Old Testament, whirlwinds are usually associated with what's called theophanies, uh, where God appears. But also, have you ever been around a whirlwind or a tornado? What's the first thing you feel? A little fear, isn't it? Why? Because you're out of control. When we stand in front of God, we are out of control. God is in control of the situation. So God then comes to Job. And what does he do? Anyone remember? What, what, what does God say to Job? Well, you darken counsel here. But why is Job darkening counsel? I, I, I like this one by Chargall, the famous um, painter. Job is praying up to God, give me justice. And God answers out of the whirlwind. And he says, where were you? Kind of like God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? Where were you? And what God, the Lord tells Job, is that where were you when I made the four corners of the universe? Where were you at the moment of creation? It's an obvious answer, isn't it? Job wasn't there. Then he goes on in chapter 39. Well, Job replies later on in 39. But he says, Where were you when I made the animals? The waters, all the fish, the Leviathan even. Where were you when I made these things that are inexplicable and inscrutable about nature? Do you understand the mysteries of the world? It's a rhetorical question. And that's God's answer to Job who's asking for justice. Now, I should have given you this one earlier. This is by the famous painter William Blake. These are the, the accusers, his friends, and then Elihu here. But uh, that's Elihu. But this is the one I want to talk about. Here. This is also by William Blake. I kind of like it, and I kind of don't. Um, I looked around for a better one, and I really couldn't find one. But there are a couple things I do like about this painting. Job is in his suppliant position, but also his wife. She's there too. She went through the same ordeal that he went through. Even though she's voiceless outside of that, last, that what she says there in the prologue. But surely she must have been with Job at this. I mean, she lost seven children, lost well, losing her husband. So she too is inquiring of God. Subsequently, she is looking up God for an answer. And here's the point. Now, I'll, I'll cut to the quick. I've got, our time is up. Um, uh, what, 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 you know, we can interpret these things in all kinds of ways. One thing I like about Job is that it's very difficult to understand. It's not an easy book. Don't you think human history is very difficult to understand? It's not an easy read, is it? Why do we do these things? Why is this happening to us? We all know the world ought to be just, but we also know outside of small pockets of it, it is not just. We all know that we should reap what we sow, and if you sow good, you should reap what is good. But we know in the future, it could be horrible that's going to happen to any one of us. You know this. You know people who are just saintly, but have experienced great horrors in their life. Why does this happen? 
God's answer to this is a challenge to us. And this is why this book is so enduring to us. Here's God's answer. God shows to Job the mystery of existence and that that existence is meaningful. That the world, though you may live in moments of chaos and great misery and loss and suffering, that world that we live in is ultimately made and handled and governed by the hands of God. We are caught up in a mystery bigger than ourselves. I'll give you a simple illustration. Very, very simple. You probably have had it in this your own way. Uh, I've been to the concentration camp just outside of Munchen called Dachau a couple of times. Very, 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 very troubling. And I had studied a lot, and I was taking students over there, so I was ready to talk about some of the details of Dachau. Okay, uh, it, it, and it was cold and snowy the days we were there. We've been there. Uh, it's, it's a compound, and all the barracks had been burned. And uh, they estimate around 30 to 35,000 Jews were killed there, but hundreds and hundreds of thousands were processed through there to go to other larger death camps. And at the corner of it in the back is... Uh, the gas house. And after they gassed all these people, men, women, and children, they buried them just over a little creek right there. You, you been there? I said, okay. Remember that, that house in there? I was standing there, and I was just overwhelmed. I thought, this is, I'm standing in front of the aftermath of one of the greatest evils in the world. And I looked out there, and I thought, how can this grass be green? when there are all those ashes in there? How can the sunrise, when there was such hittably, 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 heinous darkness that was there at the same time, how can there be birds singing when there be such crying that was going How can the world go on when there be such horrors in it? How can it? Well, that's what, that's what God shows Job. It's going to go on. We're all part of a bigger story. And the chaos that we experience in our life will not defeat or undermine the goodness of God's creation. The mystery of our existence is still in God's hands, not in ours, or even in the hands of a Hitler or a Stalin or on and on and on. That we're part of this wonderful story that continues. And so Job learns that at the end. You remember his, I'll stop with this. What, what were his final words? I'd only heard of you a report, but now I see you face to face. And I repent in dust and ashes. He then saw some truth that he had not learned otherwise. And that truth is that God's presence is even found in the tragedies of human existence. Give me 30 seconds here and I'll let you go. Uh, what's the difference between Ephesus and Job? How would you say fundamentally they are different? There's something very similar. Good, bad things happen to good people. We cannot control the future. We're up against something that is powerful than us. We're outmatched. The, the both, both, both teach that. But what's the fundamental difference? In Oedipus Rex, there's just chaos. In Job, there's hope. Because God is the creator of the world. When we say the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, what's the first affirmation of our faith? I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, 
And every time planes fly into tall buildings killing 3,000 people, every time another stupid virus breaks out, every time another tyrant rises up and persuades people to go and do great wine, we ought to affirm that. I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. We are still in the mystery of God's creative universe. And that's a, that's a challenging lesson to learn. And I think that's what Philip teaches us. All right, I kept you too long. Don't turn me in. Don't, you know, I've already got enough demerits. Uh, and I'll try to cut to the quick a little more quickly next time. Okay, next time we're going to talk about Shakespeare. Okay. King Lear and As You Like. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. You're welcome. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.